Chesty Bouquet. Here. Chesty Blue. Uh, looks like she's not here. Chesty Fox. Here. Chesty Splendorio. Here. We do have a quorum. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so uh, am I correct uh, uh, that we do not have any public comment at this time? Correct. Okay. So we'll go to the uh, consent agenda. Uh, does anybody have any uh, items that they want to take off the consent agenda? Okay. Um, I wanted to ask a couple of questions about the uh, the uh, compliance report for the year, uh, action item B. So do you want to take that off of consent, Trustee Fox? Yes. Okay. And I'll move okay, uh, approval of the rest of the consent agenda. Second. All right. I will do a roll call vote. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. And this is to approve the minutes. Apologies yeah. for not being more clear yeah. about that. Item A1, right? A1. All right. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Splendorio. Yes. All right, the motion passes. Thank you. Okay. Uh, going through these items, I had a couple of questions and really definitional questions. And one of them is, is the third item for the bottom where it says monitor BTG access. What is BTG? Bob, I can't hear you. Yeah, I think you're on mute. Sorry, that's break the glass. Oh, so you, you want okay. Uh, and, and, and could you give me some more context to that? Okay, so that's a function with an ethic, and it is um, it gives up a, a little um, kind of hey before you can go in, you need to give a reason and for going into the patient's record, and it is if you're not part of the care team, um, you do not have access unless you can put a reason why you need the access, and we can track it within compliance. Okay. For example, Trustee Fox, I'm a patient in the system, and if, if someone wants to look at my record, a whole array of alerts come up and ask them to break the glass to look at my record. I had some blood drawn the other, uh, the other day, and all the uh, check-in people were like, oh, I have to break the glass on you. Everyone kept saying they had to break the glass on me, which I felt guilty about, but it shows that the system puts the barrier up. Okay. All right. The other uh, item I want, I just wanted to call out is um, the two midnight rule. And I don't know if when, uh, since I missed the last meeting, there was any definition of the two midnight rule. Well, that is a CMS rule um, regarding uh, reimbursement. And so if you um, don't meet that criteria, then you, um, that, inpatient it doesn't qualify 
Okay, so I think, uh, and uh, I'm not sure if everybody on the committee knows, understands what that rule means, but my memory of that rule is that you need to be in the hospital as an admitted patient uh, over two midnights in order for that not to be considered a one-day stay. Right, correct. And one-day stays uh, attract a lot of attention uh, from the Medicare program and are often, if not usually, denied. Okay. Uh, correct. There is um, a team that actually does uh, review whether that meets the inpatient. And so even though a physician wants to admit the patient, uh, there's um, a, a facility site that um, gives uh, kind of um, notification that it does not meet the criteria. Okay. Thank you for that. And that's just one other question on the third item where it says investigations. Uh, what does POC mean? Oh, gosh, POC. Um, POC dash privacy and compliance. P privacy and That would be plan of correction. Okay. Okay. And what, what does that mean? Well, if you have, so usually a, when, oh, go ahead, Bonnie. I was going to say, usually when we have regulatory agencies that um, submit a notification or um, they want us to follow up on a concern that uh, we had reported to them, and we would have to follow up with a plan of correction with what okay. type of action that we did to correct that um, mistake or error. All right. Thank you. Those are the only questions that I have. So uh, if there's no further discussion, uh, can we go ahead and move approval of the entire uh, a consent agenda? Motion to approve item B, which we just discussed. I think we already approved item A. Right, right. I will second that motion. All right, uh, Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Slendorio. Yes. The motion passes. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so our next item, I think, is to, to move on to the uh, let's see. Um, maybe looking at the wrong. Uh, Item C, trustee, uh, trustee chair, <laughs> uh, it's a discussion with cybersecurity improvements. Right. From a, our chief information security officer. Okay. Why don't we go ahead with that item? That's an informational item, right? Yeah, yes, sir. Okay. So should I put up this? Or EJAS, do you have that presentation? Um, I don't have the, uh, the packet. Okay. So let me, um, uh, find that. Ahmad, if you need to do this, this is on page 14 of 61 of the packet. Okay. 
Okay, great. Um, so I guess I'll start. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Ijaz Ali, and I'm the Chief Information Security Officer for Alameda Health. Uh, cybersecurity is a huge component of audit and compliance, and for that reason, I'm excited to present to you what we're doing um, since the last time I came to this committee meeting, which was uh, exactly a year ago, uh, in September of 2020. Uh, next slide, please. So here's the agenda for the presentation. Uh, we're going to talk about what's been going on this year uh, in terms of cybersecurity, how it impacts healthcare and Alameda Health System, what we're currently doing, what we've done, and what we'll be doing. And then I'll end it just to share a couple of uh, tips and tricks that um, I like to uh, give uh, uh, to help us in security. Uh, next slide, please. So 2021 has been the year of cyber attacks. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a Fortune 500 or a small mom and pop store, if you have a network connection, then you're a target. If you have data other, that others are interested in stealing, like PHI, for example, then you're a target. If the bad actors can disrupt your business and profit off of it, then you're a target. Here are some examples of successful attacks that happened this year. Colonial Pipeline had a ransomware attack that shut down the 5,000 mile long pipe along the south and eastern coast, leaving tens of thousands of gas stations without gas. Colonial was not prepared for this attack and gave the ransomware group 5 million to get their system back as it was cheaper than the cost of the outage. Uh, the NBA's Houston Rockets had their computers breached and someone stole all the private financial and contractual data of their athletes and staff. In terms of healthcare, Scripps has been the uh, biggest one. Their attack led them to be down for almost six weeks and they lost about an estimated 113 million in revenue. California is the most populous state and has the most hospitals and clinics. So that means California's health systems are the most targeted and unfortunately, the most breached. Uh, next slide, please. All right, so let's, let's talk a little bit about healthcare. The number of successful attacks have increased and the experts believe that the trend will not change. Hacking and IT related breaches in healthcare have become the most prevalent as the industry removes um, as industry moves to remote work, therefore increasing the attack surface and making cybersecurity that much more important. Healthcare for the last seven to eight years have been the most targeted sector because the dark web value of a health record has gone up about and is about 40 to 60 times as much as a credit card. And the reason for that is because the health record will most likely give you 18 data points to steal from and unlike a credit card, you can't just get a new health record. Uh, next slide. All right, um, so what are we doing to protect AHS? Next slide. Right, uh, passwords, firewalls, ransomware, and two-factor authentication is what comes to mind when anyone talks about information security. But that's just a fraction of what we do. And by the way, uh, the terms information security and cybersecurity are interchangeable. Um, so you'll, you'll see me use both of those. So what we've done is we've established a program with two goals in mind. One is called the CIA triad, which you see on the right, 
Where C is confidentiality, that's where we protect our data, our network, our assets. I equals integrity, where we ensure our data has not been altered. And A for availability, where we ensure data and the network is available at all times. The second goal is to manage those risks to an acceptable level, and that will be the focus of this presentation. Next slide. Okay, so what are these risks? Uh, what I've done is I've broken them down to 10 categories and just going back to the buzzwords that I used earlier, like two-factor authentication is to protect outside access, that's remote worker management, and ransomware is malware protection. But there are eight others ranging from patient safety to regulatory, which is HIPAA compliance, all the way to disaster recovery. So we're not like scripts uh, and down for over six weeks and out over a hundred million. Patient safety is something we can all agree on and it's not achievable without information security. In 2019, a hospital in Germany was hit with ransomware and had to divert their patients to another hospital. One patient died on transit. It was believed that she was gonna die anyway, but ransomware sped up that timeline. In a way, ransomware is responsible for her timely death. Ransomware is also preventable no one here wants our patients to die due to preventable outcome. So these are, so these are the risks that we manage. Uh, next slide. So how do we manage those risks? So no one dies from a cyber attack. We created objectives to achieve our two goals that range from patient safety to identify all assets and users on our network because we can't protect what we don't know to actually identifying the threats and protecting against them and maintaining plans to get back to business as normal in case an incident occurs. We achieved those objectives by applying these six principles and using them as a guide. We've now implemented proactive risk management, improved our awareness and communication as it relates to security and matured our policies, procedures and governance. We've taken that guidance and found the best cybersecurity framework that fits this organization. And that's the NIST cybersecurity framework. NIST stands for the National Institute for Standards and Technology, and it was developed by the Department of Commerce in 2014 and sets the foundation to protect against cyber attacks today and in the future. It's the gold standard framework across all industries, including healthcare. Our neighbors over at John Muir, Stanford, and El Camino Health all use it, just to name a few. It can be broken down into these five functions that you see on the right. Those are identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. Next slide. All right, so how does it all come together? We put each of these objectives into the five functions of NIST and develop the corresponding programs you see to the right of each function. As an example, let's look at the identify function of NIST, where the objective is to identify methods of protecting our high value assets, which is PHI. So what came out of that? We developed a risk assessment program, allowing us to properly identify the risk to our PHI with changes in the environment. Uh, next slide. 
Okay, um, so we talked about the program. Now let's look at what we've done. Next slide. All right, um, so this is our roadmap. This slide is busy for a reason. We've been busy and we'll continue to be busy with your support. Green are items we've completed, including our first security internal audit, developing policies and procedures that correspond with HIPAA compliance, incident and risk management, and getting some of the top tier tools to catch up and compete with these bad actors. And we've still got a lot of, lot of work to do, and it's not possible without your support. Our risk landscape is always changing, so some items can be moved around and some more will probably be added. Uh, so let's go a little deeper into what we've done and how it relates to our NIST cybersecurity framework and our objectives. Next slide. The identify function is where we've made the most strides. Not only have we identified the assets we have, but we've identified the ones that we no longer needed. 179 of them exactly. Now these assets were um, assets that we've that we've upgraded and just kept on uh, that we should have really turned off. But after we, we did a security audit, we, we turned those assets off. We've increased HIPAA compliance by 816%. So last September, we were fully compliant on six out of the 67 pieces of, of the HIPAA regulation. We're now fully compliant on 55 of those, which is where the 816% comes from. And we still got work to do in terms of disaster recovery and business continuity. And if you remember the, um, the slide prior of the roadmap, does it, Disaster recovery and business continuity was the only red item on the wrap. And we're also proactive in our risk management and assessment as no applications or assets get addressed without my team doing the assessments of each. Next slide. Protect is another function in which we're doing quite well. We blocked access to personal drives like Google and iCloud so you can't store files accidentally or bring files into the network that have malware on them. We have data loss protection on our emails in case you forgot to encrypt the PHI before sending it out. Uh, we've enabled two-factor for network access. Also for email, we moved everyone to the cloud for Office 365, and we're in the process of rolling two-factor authentication out for that. The IS division is currently testing any issues as we speak. We're doing all of this because it needs to be done. These are all industry standard and necessity to protect our patients and our brand. We've upgraded our antivirus to endpoint detection to protect our computers and laptops, even when they're not on the network. Case in point, an employee at home received a very clever USPS mail pretending to be the California office of the comptroller, Betty Yee and asking our employee to visit a website to claim their money. The user went on using his AHS laptop and the site was actually located in Eastern Europe and started to communicate and start the ransomware process. Our tools picked it up, blocked it and removed it without the user knowing anything had happened. It's technology designed to protect you while not disrupting your flow. Next slide. 
Which brings us to detect. We mentioned our upgrade of the antivirus to catch any incidents that happen both on and off network. We also have a networking tool, ExtraHop, that will pick up any suspicious movement across the network and alert us. All of these tools and other security tools and alerts work together and send their findings to what we call a SIEM, which is a security incident and event management tool, which takes this activity and ties it to a user and will record the activity prior, during, and after the incident in which we can use that to investigate what happened, how it happened, and close any gaps that we may find. Next slide. And that leads to our ability to respond. Last year, we didn't have this ability to detect, protect, or respond to external threats as we do now. You know, we waited for outside agencies to tell us when we had an incident. Now we're stopping external threats as they happen. Our focus is now reducing the internal threats and compromise accounts. And the way that we're doing this is that we're baselining activity to alert us when something abnormal happens. As an example, I have never accessed the finance department's files. If I do it now, I would get an alert. Um, and then if I downloaded financial files, I would trigger a second alert, which would chain together and raise my risk score and that would warrant an investigation. Uh, next slide. Recover is our ability to get back to, uh, to normal operations once an incident has occurred, which means we, we need processes in place for each department and the applications that are the utmost important to this organization need disaster recovery. We're already building that into our email systems, being up in the cloud, we have that with Epic, but we don't have that with other important systems like our imaging system, PACS, and our lab systems, amongst others. And that's where the work will come in and then the funding will be requested for. Uh, next slide. So uh, as your CISO, um, I like to leave with just uh, giving a couple of um, personal examples on how we can be secure. Uh, if you received an email and you're not expecting it, uh, then question it. There has been countless times where um, one of our colleagues or a friend has had their email compromised. And then the, the bad actor compromised their emails, sends, um, sends emails from that account saying that, you know, will you will you look at this file or I need you to review this document and it's actually phishing, a phishing document, or it's, it's malware attached to that document. If you're not expecting it, uh, then question it. And uh, probably the second thing that's um, very important to me is uh, turn on two-factor for banking. Um, if, if your bank doesn't have two-factor authentication, then I'd um, highly recommend going with a new banking. I mean, we, we all work hard for our, our money. Let's just not have someone easily take it just because they can guess your username and password. Um, have that two-factor on your phone. Uh, next slide. Uh, any questions or comments?
Yeah, I have a couple of questions. Thank you. That, that was a very good report, very enlightening. Um, where is is most of our storage? Uh, I know you you said that we we had just uh, moved our email records to the cloud, but what about all of our our medical record storage and financial storage? Is that uh, does does Epic keep that for us? Is that in the cloud, or do we have storage uh, somewhere offsite, or and do we have redundancy in the, in that storage? Yeah, so for the Epic data, uh, that's actually stored by Epic since Epic is hosting our system and they have redundancy uh, for that. Uh, in terms of the data that we have here at Alameda, so we have uh, a data center in Redwood City and also one in Highland. And then our, our server team does... Um, two types of backups. So they do physical tape backups uh, and they also do virtual backups. So uh, um, we have about two different types of backups. What, what do you mean by virtual backups? So the servers in the Redwood City and Highland are what we call virtual servers. And the way that they're um, the way that they're backed up is they're backed up to what we call a virtual storage area network. So, um, and it's done on a nightly basis. Okay, but that, that that's a, a physical storage network? Uh, yeah, it's a physical storage network. Okay. Um, one more, a uh, couple more questions, I guess. One is on, on earthquake risk, uh, since you have a, uh, a data center here, probably a couple of blocks from the, uh, the, the fault line, Hayward Fault. Uh, how would you assess our earthquake preparedness and the risk we have from earthquake? So um, that's actually part of the disaster recovery and business continuity work that, um, that we'll be doing in, uh, I believe, January through May. So, so we'll be uh, assessing... Um, where where our data is stored? Uh, if if there was an earthquake, you know that as big as the 1906 cent or 1906 earthquake, then um, you know would we would we be prepared or or not? So and one of the things that we're doing right now is we we have Office 365, so we're we also have you know data up up in the cloud. And then uh, probably one of the other things that um, I will look at is um, having a data center um, that's like probably like East Coast or like redundant. Okay. So it sounds like this is kind of an open issue for us that we need to get this assessment done, you know, and make some plans. And in the interim, um, we're not sure about the... Uh, about our earthquake readiness is that a fair statement uh, it it is one of the action items that i have in order to uh, close our gaps to be uh, fully hipaa compliant okay um, and uh do we we haven't talked about earthquake insurance but does anybody on the call know if uh, AHS has earthquake insurance? I don't know if how that would help us 
uh, if we had IT losses? Yeah, tr Trustee Fox, so, uh, you know, we do have, you know, commercial liability insurance, for example, and, and I think as part of that, it does cover earthquake, but I'll confirm that uh, and part of that is business interruption. Uh, so I know we have a uh, business interruption in, in such a case, but I'll, I'll confirm and circle back with you. I'll send you an email. So Rana, um, I'm gonna ask you to make sure that we get uh, a report on uh, the assessment that's going to be done next winter uh, onto, onto our agenda when that report is ready so we can follow up on earthquake readiness. I'll add it to my list. Okay. Okay, any other questions on this report? I do. Uh, I'm going to find where you are. Um, oh, Ijaz, uh, this is Splend, Splendorio. Uh, so f I think the earthquake preparedness is a bigger that's for the hospital system as well. I, I don't think Alan means just for IT and, and security. I, I think, I mean, it all fits into the whole preparedness of the hospital system. I think, I think that's what Alan is meaning. Well, I'm, I'm talking about the context of, of IT at, in, at this point in time, but obviously you're, you're right. You're bringing up a larger question, which is the preparedness and the insurance, if we need any or have any. For the whole organization. Yeah, I, I, I think, but I don't want to waste money on focusing on one aspect of earthquake preparedness. That's all. That's all. I, that's all I'm asking maybe Mark or James to take that into consideration when, when you consider what the, the earthquake preparedness is. I mean, I, I don't, I want to see the whole picture. I don't want to see bits and pieces of it because it all fits in. Um, okay. Going back to the redundancy. So I, I want to understand. So the, the, Servers we have at Highland and the server we have in San Mateo County, are they redundant or do they just have separate functionality? So they have separate functionality, but they're backed up and those backups make those systems redundant. Okay, cool. That's right. So you're, what you're looking for is somewhere either in the mountain states or in the East Coast for redundancy, true redundancy. Um, or I guess we'll call it double redundancy. Maybe is a better word to say it. Correct. So, so, so we don't end up like scripts because they were down for over six yeah. weeks, so they didn't have that kind of redundancy. Very nice. Um, so, uh, I, I know, I know, I see Kim, our CFO, is online, but I'm going to ask a, an insurance question. I just we do have cyber security insurance, right? Okay, cool. I mean, I'm, I'm at Mod is saying not in his head, so oh, yeah, just, absolutely. We, we just, just good for. So, I do have a better question than that. Uh, my firms went up tremendously. We had to requote it. Any, yeah. Is that what happened for? Oh, for yeah. Okay, Absolutely. All right. throughout okay. the entire industry. It's yeah, okay. Uh, and in a large part because everything what John said just a second ago. Okay, so then, great. And then you just one last thing. Do we have a training module that we send out to most, or not, if not all, employees to train them on phishing and cyber, you know, just cyber to help mitigate? Uh, cybersecurity attacks. Uh, is that something you've considered? We have. If we haven't, are we considering it? Um, you know, just to train people on what a phishing email looks like or what it, you know, what to avoid. And I mean, just the example that you gave the person who was using an AHS computer thought that they had won the lottery from 
uh, our treasurer, our state treasurer. And um, uh, so that I'm just wondering, do we have, if not, are we considering one? Yeah, so so we do have training in our learning management system, Elsevier, and um, our compliance team uh, puts out a newsletter monthly that talks about um, like the really like basics when it comes to protecting our PHI and also phishing. And uh, every now and then, I do contribute to that um, to that newsletter. Okay, so I was thinking even more than that is I'm not, I get from my IT department about, I mean, honestly, it really burns me that I get them on Sunday mornings, but I get little one or two minute videos. They're funny and they teach you, you know, they're interactive. You have to answer questions and they only let, you know, it, it takes you five minutes or less than that. But I'm just, it, that seemed a lot more effective than getting a newsletter because I think we know what happens to most newsletters. And it forces, and I have to respond to them. I have to. I have to say, I, you know, I, li- I watched the video, and and then answered a question. I, I'm, um, maybe maybe I'm being oversensitive, but it's no. not very intrusive. Yeah, Splen, this is Mark. In in our e-learning annual learning modules, we have a whole module on just what you're describing, and it's expected once a year that the staff. Um, and in fact, I just finished mine. Um, go through it. Now it isn't, um, nothing is pushed out to us other than um, the newsletter that's being talked about, as you're describing these little vignettes where you can kind of walk through the learning. We've got one sit down, big hour long annual learning around this. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I mean, I, I, cause I know where we're vulnerable. It's, it's all of us. I mean, we're the most vulnerable people. Uh, you know, for this. So I just, having it as easy to digest is all I'm suggesting looking at yeah. versus a yeah. one hour thing, Mark. I mean, come on, really? Yeah. Somebody's going to sit for an hour and want to learn all about cyber threats. I mean, it, like I said, I, I do like what my IT department did. And like, you know, I know that I hate that they come on Sunday mornings. I don't know why they do, but it's not very intrusive. You know, in four minutes or less, I'm done. And I learned something. Yeah. It's, um, that's, Splen, if you've got anything you can share in terms of the company or how they do, they make that up internally. It would be helpful for no, us. I, I think. I mean, I think Ijaz, you probably are familiar with Mimecast, and yeah, I, I, it might come from there. I just, I mean, I can, I can forge you one that I got a few weeks ago. If you know, yeah. if you, but I don't know the. It's, it's a cute. I said they're very cute vignettes. You're right, Mark. Very cute. Um, you know, they got the same goofy characters who always are making the same mistakes. Yeah, I mean, you know, you get to know the characters, sort of like a TV show. Um, but, you know, there's a lesson in each one of them, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Good. Thank you. Yeah. And then uh, also just to add to that, um, I am a people person, and I couldn't do this last year because of the pandemic. But um, starting October, I will be doing a walkthrough to all the sites and the clinics and just looking how, um, you know, cybersecurity is in person and then just be able to like answer any questions that anyone will, will, will have. So. Great. Okay. uh, Any other questions? No, thank you for that great presentation. Thanks. Excellent report. Thank you. Okay. I think uh, we're ready to move on now to, uh, item D, 
uh, report on the progress of the external audit. And I think we have Mr. Finice. Do I have that right? And Mr. Connor? I do not believe they're on yet. Um, okay. So we want um, to move to item E. Uh, yeah. So let me see. I will try sharing my screen. So um, I'm going to talk about um, three areas today. So let me just go over here. All right, so everybody can see this. Okay, so um, can everybody see the 340B? Yes, ma'am. All right, so. Yeah, we see the title slide. Oh, you see the title slide, okay. Okay, me, Dave Pistoni is sharing his, so just tell him when to advance slides. Okay. So can we move to the next slide, please? And um, another one, please. Okay, and one more. This will show the detail. So I um, wanted to just talk about that we have a, um, a 340B oversight committee. And so just wanted to give you um, a little kind of overview about it. And so um, in this uh, committee, we um, we have these um, drug um, that gives us access to uh, prices that are lower than the typical market prices. And so if you see in this um, box here, this kind of shows you based on the different types of drug, the percent that we get as far as the discounts. So the next slide, please. So um, we have um, different entities where the, um, this program is encompasses. So if you look at this, we have the three um, standing clinics, our wellness clinics, and then we have like Alameda Wound Clinic, Alameda Hospital, Highland Hospital, and John George, but it does not include um, San Leandro in this. Next slide. Um, so I put this in here because, you know, compliance, it's important. And so if we do not follow the 340B um, program um, rules and regs, 
then we will either be removed from the 340B program or we will have to uh, repay the manufacturers for that time period that we were in violation. And um, actually we are, we've done it in the past and we, we identified that there was a problem and we did a notification to, um, to the um, federal and that we came to an agreement with that we would uh, repay the manufacturers and we have done that already. Let's go to the next slide. So in this um, oversight committee, um, the reason why we have it because there's different stakeholders and each of these uh, stakeholders have an accountability. It's not just compliance who is running it um, or have oversight. And that's why we have this um, committee that meets on a quarterly basis. And we also um, review that um, all the stakeholders are following the rules and the policies um, so we can remain in compliance. We also do um, different reviews um, to ensure that we um, are in compliance. If we're not, that we're taking um, uh, corrective action plans. Um, so next slide, please. So as I mentioned about stakeholders, um, we have, of course, Mark Rasky, who's our um, uh, executive um, sponsor of this program. And then we have compliance and finance, revenue cycle, IT, legal, and pharmacy, which is a big part of this um, committee. Uh, next slide. So um, we've done it in an audit, the compliance team, and it was for the period of December to um, June of 2021. And so in the findings, um, we have large amount that was correct for the um, actual acquisition on costs in the Epic system. However, for 872 claims, there were some problems like our mapping of, and so the mapping has to do with the different payers we have. And so everybody not, does not follow the same guidelines. So we have managed care, Medi-Cal, and we have managed um, Medi-Cal fee for service and so on. And so we had to make sure with revenue cycle that for each of the payers that the mapping is correct. Then a, qu a question. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Uh, what does AAC mean? It means actual acquisition costs. Okay. And so the other was the items. Um, so the drug um, has a um, particular code, this J code. And it wasn't always triggering um, for charges. So revenue cycle um, is working on that with Epic. The other is the way it was billed um, for FQHC. Because even though there's a bundled um, payment um, for certain um, payers like Family Pack, for example, you have to separate it out and it has to be for fee for service claim. 
Um, so that's right now, uh, Revenue Cycle is working um, to correct these. Uh, next slide. So Pharmacy also did a re um, an audit too. And so overall they did pretty, um, pretty good. And so um, the WAC, what that stands for is wholesale uh, acquisition costs. And so it's at 90, 91% and understand this review is only for Highland. And then their accuracy rate of the um, accumulation is 99%. And what that is, <clears throat> it's replenishing the, um, the drugs based on the 33, um, 340B eligible um, patients. So there's a requirement that pharmacy has to track record that, that they're not over um, replenishing those drugs. So next slide. So I just wanted to put this in here um, because there's an executive um, order that um, Governor Newsom signed. And so this is going to affect um, our outpatient pharmacy service reimbursement. And so they are transitioning from Medi-Cal managed care to Medi-Cal fee-for-service. And so for our outpatient um, pharmacy, it's going to limit um, the reimbursement because they have to do it by fee-for-service. But as far as the physician administrative um, drugs, those will stay the same. And so right now, though, it hasn't been um, implemented because of some conflict of interest issues. So they're working on that. But the um, pharmacy projected that the reimbursement will be re um, reduced to about 915000 So annually, um, their reimbursement is $19.8 uh, million. So it sounds like we're going to lose about 5% of our reimbursement. Yes. So um, the, in this oversight committee, this is um, a topic that we will have updates on. And just so we understand what, what is happening here, trans, does this mean a transition from Medicare, Medi-Cal managed care pricing? Yes. Uh, yes. So, so, uh, the 340B program is to make the acquisition cost of drugs less expensive for us to take care of our uh, indigent patients. Isn't that correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. And so uh, I guess we get more money for a Medi-Cal patient than we get for a general fee-for-service patient? Uh, yes, that's because um, of the state so we actually, um, we get a discount and, um, but we, the money that we have based on that discount, it flows to uh, our indigent population. So that's part of why uh, we do it is because for hospital organizations, we actually receive monies that we can use to help our um, regular, um, our indigent population. Um, and, but in order for that to occur, we have to follow their 
um, the 340B um, guidelines because the manufacturers are giving us a discount on the drugs. Well, it seems a little bit uh, duplicitous for the state and they have such a big effort to transfer their patients away from Medi-Cal fee-for-service to Medi-Cal managed care and then to make this change where we get reimbursed based on fee-for-service, which is a, an ever-declining proportion of the patients. Yeah, that's correct. But this is the, in mysterious ways. Yeah, this is the executive order that came in. And so um, all outpatient pharmacies have to follow this rule. Okay. So is there any other questions? Okay, so then um, can you move the slide? So I don't know if um, you're going to have this part where um, Ahmad's going to speak to, or should we go through um, my chart? Uh, uh, Kemi, you can continue here. Okay, thanks, Ahmad. So the... um, can we go to the next slide? So um, I'm going to have um, Bonnie Leong uh, speak to this because she's our um, director of, of privacy and regulatory compliance. So um, Bonnie. Hi, Bonnie, you're on mute. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Kami. Hi, so today I am going to provide an overview on my chart team proxy access. So my chart is essentially a secure electronic health record platform, and it's a patient portal where patients can access their health information. They have access to view medications, test results, their health summaries, and they can also securely communicate with their providers. So proxy access, on the other hand, allows a parent or their guardian to log into you know the patient's medical record and they can essentially view the same type of information as the patient and they can also communicate with the patient's care team on behalf of the patient Um, next slide so here's our proxy access grid and it shows how proxy access is set up at alameda health system so if you look at the first column, you can see that, you know, for, for a child ages zero to 11 years old, you can tell that the patient, it's all red, meaning they do not have access to view their records at that point. However, a parent as a proxy would be able to have full access to that child's record. But as a child comes a teen, ages 12 to 17 years old, you can see now that the patient is green now where access to their own information, they can view that. Parents also as proxy can view the minor team's records. However, you can see there's some red, meaning there's some restrictions um, to that team's records. And then when the team becomes an adult, um, 18 over, they have full access to their own um, electronic health record. And if they want to establish proxy access, they can. So the area I want to focus is this middle column, the teen ages 12 to 17. So that age group is more complicated because under state and federal law, there are certain types of medical information that a parent or guardian of a minor teen may not view without the consent of a minor patient. 
So these usually involve sensitive type of services. So when a minor consents to be treated for these sensitive services, they must also consent to the release of this type of information. So without the minor's consent, we would not be able to release the information. So during the build phase, you know, back um, in 2018-19 when we were trying to um, build this out, we noticed there were several um, challenges within EPIC. And we were not able to separate the viewable data between parent view and the minor patient view. So what that means is if we allow the minor patient to view their sensitive lab result, then the parent would also have access to view that same sensitive lab result. So there really isn't a way to restrict it um, from the parent only. So essentially we have like an all or nothing approach. And due to this technical limitation, We've blocked certain categories of data. So you can tell like in the grid, you can see some medications, the medication um, section we blocked, the problem list, open notes would be blocked. So, you know, these certain categories of data are blocked for both the parent and the minor. So they won't be able to view sensitive type of data via my chart, but they could obtain this information by going through um, the health information management department. Um, Next slide. So of course, you know, concerns have come up and there was a particular case study that I wanted to just bring up, um, which kind of helped us identify a couple of errors and concerns that um, we were able to identify. And one of the concerns was that there was a potential for parents to obtain direct access to the minor team's medical information without going through the proxy access process. So essentially a parent can potentially use their own email address and the activation code that's given to the minor teams, um, their after visit summary, and they can use that to register for the MyChart account. And when they do that, the parents are acting as a minor team, which you know is a problem. And you know, we've identified that as a potential issue. So since then, this week, um, the activation code process has been deactivated. And, you know, another concern that we identified is that our current build does not reflect what the work group originally agreed upon. So, for example, um, the sensitive services that should have been blocked that you saw in that grid for both the parent and the minor patient groups due to that epic limitation, um, that did not appear to be the case since the parent, you know, using the minor's account was able to see some of the information that should have been blocked. So because of these concerns, um, we established a work group and we're addressing these issues and we've um, developed action items and next steps. And you know, one of the action items is to update uh, my AHS terms and conditions. And essentially, you know, the terms and conditions are what patients would see prior to signing up for uh, my AHS. It gives them an idea of, okay, what is my AHS or my Alameda Health patient portal? What information can I expect to see on the portal? And, you know, proper ways to use the portal. So it has all of that in there. And there's a specific section that addresses uh, minor and proxy access that um, we are working on updating because um, initially we had restricted all access, but because of information blocking, we cannot, can no longer restrict complete complete restriction of um, access to the patient and the proxy 
So we've updated the bill to reflect the changes in regulations. And um, with that, we also have to update the terms and conditions. So another um, action item that we have is to review the team proxy settings to ensure that correct configurations are set up. So um, we want to ensure that restrictions are correctly placed for both the parents and the minor temptations. And we want to review additional sensitive categories that may need to be restricted. So there might be additional tests that could fall into one of the you know, sensitive category that we may want to um, going forward start restricting. And then um, another or final um, action item is to review the overall workflow for granting proxy access for minor teams. So the work group agreed that, you know, we're going to review accounts that may have potential inappropriate proxy access and then deactivate those accounts. And we want to just make sure we remove any potential access risk to the account. But, you know, we would only do this, you know, once we have an agreed upon workflow that's been established on how to provide appropriate access to the minor teen and then also appropriate proxy access to the parent and guardian. So currently we're working with ambulatory leadership and um, their operations team to finalize this workflow to see how it would look like because there's options where um, they can re request proxy access online or, you know, if they're going in with the minor team for a clinic visit, potentially, you know, they can see somebody in person that could help them, you know, sign on. So we're kind of working through a potential workflow and once that workflow has been established and finalized at that point we would be able to um, identify which an appropriate proxy access that you know can be deactivated and then go ahead reactivate based on the um, updated workflow does anyone have any questions Bonnie, this is Kath Buket. How many times has this been a concern uh, that, that we're aware so, of? It actually just uh, came up um, a few weeks ago, and that was the first time that we actually received a concern about um, this. And, you know, it was so this actually was a good case because the minor had consented to the parent getting involved in their care even though it involves sensitive information and when when the parent came and started asking the provider about certain issues i think that's when the provider was like wait how do you know you know how did you see that and when when the parent said that you know they were able to go on my chart then at that point i think that just kind of you know raised some eyebrows and we were like wait a minute you know something's off so then we kind of got a group of um, IT analysts and my chart analyst team together to see, okay, how did that happen? And how was he able to, you know, the parent was able to go in. And that's when we identified that he used his own email using the activation code. And if the parent has activation code, they can go ahead and sign up. So that's one area where we identified. So really we have not had any other concerns that were brought up, but just this one that came up had it forced us to relook at our overall process and kind of go back and retest um, certain functionality. Okay, thank you. Any other questions on this report? Okay, 
Thank you. That was an informative report for all of us, I think. Uh, Thank you. Okay. Are we ready for the update on the internal audit? Um, or, yes. I'm sorry, on the external audit. Yes, they're here. Okay. So is it Mr. Finice and uh, Mr. Connor? Yes. Yes. So, Good afternoon. Okay. Welcome. Okay. So let me see about bringing up their slide. Can everybody see it? We should make it larger. Yes. Oops, that's the wrong one, actually. Nope, the wrong one. One second. Kevin Davis here, if you want Dave to present, he's been presenting the entire time. Okay. Okay, so let me just give me one second. Okay, let me try to bring this up. Um, All right, it's it's up. Can you see it? Anyone? Yes. Right. Yes. I, I I believe we're ready to go. If if, if the Moss Adams team would like to start. Great, thank you. We'd be happy to. So, um, I I believe uh, this might have been distributed in materials prior to the meeting, um, but what's I know there's a lot of information on the screen. Uh, but it's it's a summary of the different uh, the status of the various audit projects and audit related projects uh, that we have going on for the year ended December 30 or I'm sorry June 30th 2021 as well as the single audit uh, for the year ended June 30th 2020. Uh, so I'll have um, John uh, walk through this information at a very high level to give you kind of an executive summary of, of what we're saying in more detail. Uh, here and of course we'd be uh, happy to um, answer any questions uh, that you have at any time. Uh, what I'll say as a, as an introduction uh, to the material is we're in the kind of the middle of our field work here uh, for these various engagements. Um, so we have a lot of work going on. We've completed uh, some work. We've got some work to do. Uh, we've been a little bit delayed on a couple of areas uh, that, that John will talk about, but otherwise progressing uh, forward. Um, you know, we don't have any information other than status updates to uh, provide to you uh, at this point in terms of um, findings or audit adjustments or concerns. Of course, if we had identified anything like that, uh, we would bring that to your attention, but it's a little early in the process to, um, you know, identify any of those uh, items for the audit committee. Uh, but what we will do is, is you know, describe where we're at from a status perspective. And, and uh, of course, uh, questions that you have, please jump in at, at any time. So to, to work through this at a high level, I'll turn it over to uh, John Finice, who's our uh, senior manager on the engagement. John? Sure, happy to take it over. Um, so this first section here, 
is related to the consolidated audit for the year end of June 30th, 2021. Um, that is inclusive of the Alameda Health System Foundation, East Bay Medical Group, and of course, Alameda Health System as the parents. Um, we have finished interim field work. Uh, during interim field work, we update our understanding of the major cycles, patient service revenue, payroll disbursements, et cetera. We didn't find any material weaknesses or significant deficiencies identified during those procedures. Uh, we are currently in the, the, I would say we're in the middle of final field work. Uh, we have pretty routinely broken up final field work into uh, two to three segments. This year it is three segments. Uh, we start off with uh, the other governmental revenue amounts due to and due from third parties. We started that back at the end of August and uh, we're in process with that one. Uh, the second segment that we did is uh, patient service revenue and patient accounts receivable. Uh, we typically don't start that one until field work, but this year we, we did start that one a little bit earlier. Management had that ready for us to begin. And so we began that um, at the same time uh, at the end of August. And uh, management's uh, reviewing uh, what we've done currently. What we typically do is we look at two months worth of, of collections after your end, in addition to the 12 months of collections throughout the year. And uh, we're currently waiting for that second month of collections. And so we just received that second month. And so we'll begin that process of evaluating that here um, uh, towards the latter half of this week. The bulk of the audit, cash, accounts payable, expenditures, et cetera, um, is beginning this week. And we'll probably get into that full swing next week. And so I don't have any progress to provide you on that one, except to say that you know uh, it's in process. As far as issuance goes, uh, no expected changes to the issuance timeline that has been in place over several um, the last several years. Uh, we do present at the end of October to audit committee and then it goes to the board and then we typically issue these statements after the board approves everything in early November. So no changes there to, to convey. Thank you for scrolling down, appreciate that. So moving on to the consolidated single audit for the year ended June 30th, 2021. Um, we have received management's preliminary schedule of expenditures of federal awards. Uh, we began with our uh, preliminary determination and we have made that determination to be the Medi-Cal Administrative Activities Program. That program is audited every year as required by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. It is always determined to be a high-risk program and so it does get audited every year. Uh, we have begun that audit. The second program that's been identified is the Crime Victims Assistance Program. That was audited back in 2018. Uh, there were no findings in that program. And so uh, because it is a material program, it will cycle every two years. And so it is back on to the agenda for uh, the fiscal year end of 2021. And then the third program is provider relief. Um, you may remember that last year, this program came off of the list due to the December 2020 uh, OMB circular, uh, the compliance circular, which pulled it off last year. And so it is on this year. And so right now, because of the timeline for reporting to the Department of Health and Human Services, which uh, is uh, has a due date of September 30th, we're expecting that once that filing deadline passes, we'll then begin planning for the single audit. 
So that's basically what I've summarized here is we haven't scheduled that yet. Um, as far as issuance, uh, we uh, anticipate that that timeline will follow a similar timeline. You are allowed per guidance to uh, file that uh, single audit nine months from the end of the year. And so that would be March of 2022. And there is an extension um, available on that as well. We're not currently planning on leveraging that extension, but just want to make you aware that there are extensions available um, should those extensions be needed to comply with uh, the single audit requirements. Next page. As I mentioned, part of the consolidated audit is the Alameda Health System Foundation. Um, while this committee isn't required to supervise that audit, um, we do bring it to your attention in that it's rolled up into the uh, overall consolidated audit. Um, we did perform interim field work at the same time that we performed uh, interim field work for the health system to update our understanding of the major control cycles. We didn't find any material weaknesses or significant deficiencies. We were intending on starting field work August 23rd. Uh, however, management decided and requested to delay that field work for a week. And so we did a soft start the week of August 30th, and we really kind of got into the bulk of field work uh, last week. Um, the impact of that delay has pushed their issuance into uh, the middle of October. We did receive uh, an update this week in that they have scheduled their audit committee for October the 12th with the board meeting to follow the week thereafter. So not expecting any impact to the consolidated financial statements. Uh, this is pretty much the same timeline as they have followed in prior years. They were looking last year to move up that timeline, but uh, given the, the change in management, um, they have decided to you know, follow the same timeline as last year. Um, I think next year we'll, we should be expecting that they will be trying to escalate that timeline, which will mean that you know, we'll be in the field earlier um, and out of sync with the, the health system because they want to be done by the end of September and not the end of October. Next here, I have uh, East Bay Medical Group. Um, traditionally, we have audited the East Bay Medical Group or formerly known as the Alameda Health Partners Audit. Um, that has traditionally been audited as a standalone audit. The health system, however, decided this year that they did not need a separate audit, um, or excuse me, the East Bay Medical Group decided that they did not need a separate standalone audit this year because they don't have an audit requirement given any you know debt requirements or things like that. And so um, they have elected to uh, forego an audit. And so as part of the Alameda Health System audit, the East Bay Medical Group will be um, audited as part of the consolidated Alameda Health System audit instead of as a standalone separate audit. I want to pause right there to see if there's any questions about the, the four sections that I've talked about so far. Well, just one comment uh, on issuance, John. Um, this is my first year on the board, and I know it, it is, I think, for the trustee Splendorio. And my, I just want to make sure that we have the same understanding that uh, you'll be presenting the audit to the audit committee uh, and not necessarily to the full board. I think uh, that's how it's been done in the past at AHS. Yes, that is that is my understanding that we present the uh, the final drafts to the audit committee, and then we stand ready to respond to any uh, questions that might come from the full board. Um, and then we issue once the full board has approved the audits. 
So the audit, the next audit committee meeting is November 17th. Uh, and I know there is no board meeting in December. So I'm not sure how, uh, I think that November 17th meeting works for the audit and, and compliance committee. Uh, Taft, I'm not sure how it works relating to the board. Mr. Chair, we can we can adapt and adjust the agenda as necessary. Uh, uh, the unfortunate thing for November is that this this committee falls on the third week of the month, as you know, right. and the full board would have been one week before. Right. Um, so options for approval, if if need be, at the higher level, include punting it to the January or even calling a special session to approve inter inter uh, inter uh, committee work if as necessary. I'll defer to the, the guidance of the chair, but know that you can have an agenda item should you request it. Okay. Well, if there, if there is nothing in the report that the committee feels necessitates discussion at the level of the board, then maybe uh, the committee can recommend approval to the board and the executive committee could have a brief meeting to approve. Would that, would that work process wise? This could also come in the form of the consent agenda as well. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Madam Clerk, General Counsel. This could also come through as a consent agenda document. But at what meeting? Because I, I think they may there may be a concern that if oh, I'm sorry that, that, for, for, for this one. I'm not I'm not sure I'm understanding what you're saying. I, I'm saying if if we wait on is there an issue? not issuing the audit formally if we don't have a, uh, uh, approval by the board until early January. This is Kim. I think that would be a problem. I know we were talking about doing a special meeting to get it approved. Uh, we, we need to have it. We need to provide it to the county. We have deadlines associated with it. Um, and I believe that the intent was to do a special meeting to get it approved. Okay. okay. So, you were on all just, those correspondence. Just, so, so we, we we can do that. Yeah, uh, we we have plenty of latitude to do that. This would not fall outside the guidance of special meetings. We could approve this in a special meeting. Council, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, and, and I believe, Rana, I believe we did that last year. We approved it in a special meeting last year. We did. We had one right, and I think we even did it right after the audit committee. It took like five minutes. Okay. All right. Uh, I will. I, I believe, uh, uh, Rana, remind me, I'm not looking at calendar. There is a, uh, a QPSC the fourth week of, that's actually Thanksgiving week. There is a QPSC that, uh, that week, correct? Yes, there's QPSC the day before Thanksgiving. Okay. Um, so so that, that might be the most opportune moment to call such a special meeting as necessary because you'd have uh, a lot of the board members in the room already. Right. Okay. Thank you for bringing that question, Trustee Fox. Okay. Uh, any other questions for uh, Moss Adams at this at this stage? Okay. Uh, Brian and John, do you have anything else for us today? Uh, nothing else. The, the the rest of the memo discusses uh, some uh, you know additional uh, status updates related to the seven month 
uh, period uh, review that we're doing uh, relative uh, to uh, the January 31st, 2021 uh, interim period, as well as uh, status update for the uh, June 30th, 2020 single audit, uh, which had been delayed by uh, a number of factors, government factors and regulatory factors here, but will be due uh, towards the end of the, uh, at the end of the month. So we're working on both of those, but uh, lots of similar kinds of updates uh, that you heard on the on the other um, engagements that we uh, already discussed. And what is the seven month? Uh, is that a stump period for one of the op- for an operation? Yeah, Alameda Health System has asked us to review the seven month period ended January thirty first, twenty twenty one, in conjunction with the uh, transition of chief executive officers to have um, some assurance over the cutoff uh, of those financial statements at the point of transition. Uh, So we're doing an engagement that uh, encompasses a review, which is uh, um, in scope, less intense, uh, and of less rigor than an audit uh, to provide some limited assurance over uh, the balances as of that interim period. Okay, so we'll hear about it's the first year that we've done that, and it's really because of the transition of the CEO. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, not hearing any other questions. Uh, thank you for the report, and we'll look forward to uh, reviewing the the final product in November. We look forward to uh, presenting to you at that time. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> We also have, uh, uh, as item F, uh, informational reports, written reports uh, in our packet. Uh, is there any, uh, any anybody want to remove one of those reports for discussion? Okay, then I think we are ready to close out the open session and go to closed session. Thank you, Chair Fox. Are you ready for that? Yes. Are are, are you ready to go to closed, Trustee? I think so. If there's there's no other, is there any other business or any other issues that anybody on the committee wants to bring up? Okay. So the board will uh, now go into closed session to consider those items on the agenda. Thank you.